0: Many of you are no doubt familiar with that expression of uh, being out of the frying pan and into the fire. And what that expression denotes is a situation in which someone is relieved from one difficult thing only to find themselves now facing something worse, something even more threatening, even more dangerous than what they had previously been facing. Sometimes life can be that way. Maybe you yourself have lived that kind of a life. Maybe you're currently living that kind of a life. Well, such was the life of Jacob here in our text this morning in Genesis 32. As we saw last week, by the blessing and intervention of God, he had successfully escaped whatever malicious intent Laban may have harbored towards him. But as we pick up today in chapter 32, we're reminded that by returning to the land of Canaan, Jacob was not only going away from someone who had been difficult for him, he was also, in fact, heading toward someone who had been difficult toward him. Someone who actually had much worse intentions toward him than Laban ever had. Back at the end of Genesis chapter 27, we were told that Esau had been planning to murder Jacob, that he was kind of biding his time until Isaac died. And of course, Rebecca had caught wind of the plan and conspired to send Jacob away to her brother Laban. And she had said to him, Genesis 27, and 45, she said, stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides, and he forgets what you did to him. Then I will send and get you from there. Now, so far as we are informed in the book of Genesis, that communication from Rebekah to Jacob that the coast is clear never did actually come. And so, therefore, we can assume that Jacob had still every reason to suppose that Esau's anger against him for supplanting him and stealing the birthright was alive and well. Now, it's true that God had commanded Jacob to return, but that command did not guarantee that there would be no obstacles or no threats along the way. And thus it was that Jacob goes from the frying pan of dealing with Laban now into anticipating the fire of dealing with Esau. And so let's look to that text. Uh, we'll be in Genesis 32 this morning, and we'll, we'll break up the reading into to two sections corresponding to, to two main points. And so our first point will be uh, prudence and prayer, and that corresponds to verses 1 through 21, prudence and prayer, and then Our second main point from uh, verses 22 to 32 will be wrestling for the blessing. So prudence and prayer, wrestling for the blessing. Let's pick up reading Genesis 32 verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all of the loving kindness and of all of the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children." For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys." He delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between the droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold... He also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. And so we see here in these, these opening verses of Genesis 32 the prudence and prayer of Jacob in facing a difficulty. As the, chapters, as the chapter opens, the angels of God meet him there, and no doubt they were there to strengthen him and encourage him under the difficult and potentially dangerous situation of meeting his brother Esau, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And certainly that is what they were doing here for Jacob. They were rendering service to him, the chosen of God, who was among those who would inherit salvation. And then we see Jacob being proactive under the circumstances. He's coming back in the direction of Esau and he well understands that the anger of Esau could still be brewing on account of all that had passed between them. And so he wants to ensure his own safety, and so he sends out these messengers ahead of him to meet Esau and to tell him that Jacob was coming. And indeed, we find that those messengers did meet Esau. And they came back to Jacob and said, Esau's coming. He's coming with 400 men. Now, if it had been within the power of Laban to do harm to Jacob as he said it was in his power... Back in chapter 31, with a a posse of kinsmen with him, then how much more would it be within the power of Esau to do harm to Jacob now, coming his way with 400 men? And Jacob clearly recognizes the precarious nature of his situation, which is why we see in verse 7 that he was greatly afraid and distressed. And we can understand why. And so, under the circumstances, he takes some practical steps in hopes of preventing a disaster. There are two main things in this regard. First, we see in verses 7 and 8 that he divides the people with him into two companies, which is a prudent step. If Esau came to one company and attacked it, then the company which is left could escape. The second act of prudence is what we observe there in verses 13 through 21, where he sends all these various droves of animals on ahead of him, ahead of the rest of the family, as gifts for Esau. Now, if you add up the number of animals there, the total comes to 580. That's a pretty generous gift, and all of these are sent ahead to Esau to pacify his anger, to curry his favor, and that's that's quite a gift. Thus we read in Proverbs 18:16 that a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. And that's certainly what Jacob wanted, right? He wanted to make room for himself within his brother's heart, and within his brother's affection, so that he could preserve his own life and the life of his family. Now, this is wisdom and prudence in play. He's trying to take reasonable precautions and take reasonable steps under the circumstances in which he finds himself. He's been commanded by God to go back to the land of his fathers. He's been promised that God would be with him, Genesis 31.3. But he's afraid and distressed, and we can, we can get that. And so he does what he reasonably can at the human level to mitigate the danger. Proverbs 22.3 tells us that the prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Now, Jacob here obviously kept going. He was supposed to keep going, right? In obedience to God to return to the land of his fathers, but... He didn't just keep going blindly as if he were a glutton for punishment. He hid himself from the potential evil that he saw on the horizon by dividing his family into two companies and by sending out these droves of gifts, the 580 animals ahead of him. But Jacob not only takes prudent steps under the circumstances, he also turns to the Lord in prayer. And we see that there in verses 9 through 12. You notice in verse 10 how he proclaims how the Lord has dealt with him up to this point. The Lord had lavished loving kindness, lavished faithfulness on him. And this was seen, in his case, by his material wealth and his family's prosperity. He says that around 20 years earlier, he had crossed the Jordan with just a staff in his hand. Right? Before he went to Laban's, he was going out single-handedly with, with nothing, basically. And now he comes back And he has two companies, two camps. He has 11 sons, an abundance of livestock, has servants with him, and so on. The Lord has been with him, has kept him, just as he has promised. And Jacob acknowledges that he is unworthy of all of this, that he is less than this great goodness that the Lord has lavished on him. And we see here that there is an appropriate humility that Jacob has with respect to himself, and there's also an appropriate gratitude that he has with respect to, to the Lord. And then in verse 11 comes the request. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. So it's very straightforward. This is a prayer for deliverance. But we need to notice here how the prayer is framed before and after. By the way that Jacob appeals to what God has already said, He begins his prayer in verse 9 by appealing back to the Lord's command. O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. And then he closes the prayer in verse 12 with a a similar appeal. He says, for you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Now in saying those things, he's of course pointing back to the Lord's previous commands, the Lord's previous promises. In verse 9, he's pointing back to that command to come home that he had received in Genesis thirty-one three, Genesis 31.13. And then in verse 12, he's referring back to the Abrahamic blessing, which had been conferred on him in Bethel in Genesis 28. And so he frames his prayer based on what God has said, based on what God has commanded, and based on what God has promised. We see often in scripture that the Lord is described in a certain way or as doing a certain thing or as making a promise in one place. And then, in another, where prayer is made, we see a request that the Lord would conduct Himself in that very way, that He would do the very thing that He has promised to do. And so just uh, just to give a couple of examples, in Psalm 119.68, we read, You are good and do good. And then in Psalm 125.4, comes the request, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. The Lord is good and does good. And then, a few psalms later, the prayer comes, Do good, O Lord. And you see something similar uh, with uh, respect to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord there makes the promise to David, of course, through Nathan the prophet. He had promised that he would build David this royal house, that he would raise up David's son after him, that that son would build the temple, that David's house and kingdom would be established before the Lord forever, that his throne would be established forever. And then as David responds to to receiving the, the promises of the Davidic covenant, he says to the Lord in praise and thanksgiving, this is 2 Samuel 7, 25 and 26, Now therefore, O Lord, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant... And his house, confirm it forever, and do as you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. The Lord had laid out these promises to David, and David calls upon the Lord upon receiving these promises and said, Lord, do what you have promised, do it for the glory and honor of your name, that your name may be magnified, and thus it was that Jacob here pleads for his deliverance from Esau, based on the word of God. It's the same the same pattern. He's looking back to what God has said, what God has commanded, what God has promised, and he's incorporating that into his prayer. And in this way, also, should our prayers be informed by the word of God? We can and should be looking to his promises, looking to his commandments, looking to his, his attributes, such as his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his justice, his love, and so on. We can be looking to all of these to inform our prayers so as to plead with God on the basis both of who he is and what he has said. And sometimes we can use the very words of Scripture itself in our prayers. I loved uh, Martin Luther's preface to the uh, the German translation of the Psalms. I think it's very, very helpful what he says there. He says, the human heart is like a ship on a stormy sea, driven about by winds blowing from all four corners of heaven. Now, if you've lived on the earth very long, you probably know exactly what Luther was talking about there. The human heart gets blown around. And he went on, he said, the book of Psalms is full of heartfelt utterances made during storms of this kind. It is therefore easy to understand why the book of Psalms is the favorite book of all the saints. For every man, on every occasion, can find in it psalms which fits his needs, which he feels to be appropriate, as if they had been set there just for his sake. And there follows a still further excellence, that when some such a word has come home and is felt to answer his need, he receives the assurance that he is in the company of saints, And that all that has happened to the saints is happening to him because all of them join in singing a little song with him since he can use their words to talk with God as they did. The point is, is that we can be looking to the Psalms, indeed looking to other prayers and scriptures like the like the prayer of Jacob here or the prayers of Paul that we see in the New Testament. And we can be using those words or using the ideas from those words to inform our prayers As believers in Christ, we should be desiring the very thing for ourselves which God desires for us. And the way that we know what God desires for us is because of what he has revealed to us in his word. And so we should be looking into his attributes, his commands, his promises, his purposes, as they are laid out in scripture. And then we need to always remember that his purposes are bigger than us. Because a lot of times we have our sights... Set pretty close to home, right? And we have our sights set right here. We want what we want, and we want it for us. But we need to step back and remember that the Lord has purposes that certainly include us, but are bigger than us. And that can be helpful, too, in informing our perspective and in guiding our prayers. Our prayers and our perspective should always be guided and informed by the Word of God. And here in our text, we see that Jacob both prayed and used prudence, and I think we should take note of this because I often think that we probably gravitate to one side or the other, right? either to prudence, that is using human wisdom and human means to try to get out of the trouble in which we are in with no requests being made to the Lord, or on the other hand, some might gravitate toward prayer alone, a kind of quietism, if you will, in which one prays and does practically nothing about the dangerous or difficult situation in which you find yourself. My guess is that most of us probably tend to err more on the first of those errors, right? That we, instead of praying, we seek to use prudence, use our wisdom, try to engineer and maneuver things the best we can, and forget about praying. Now, there might be some on the other side. The point is, we need both. We need both to pray and to use wisdom. James says to us in James chapter 5, is any one of you suffering? Then he must pray. We find in Psalm 50 verse 15, the words of the Lord, he says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. And so in light of that, are you praying? Are you calling out to the Lord in your day of trouble? Are you seeking his help, his mercy, his strength to keep you from temptation? Are you seeking the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the promises of the gospel? It's not that you always need to be quoting the promises of Scripture in your prayers, but the promises of forgiveness that we have in Christ should be informing what we're doing when we're asking the Lord for forgiveness. Are you calling upon the Lord in the day of trouble? Or when the day of trouble comes, are you simply trying to figure things out for yourself? And when we call upon the Lord in the day of trouble, it's also worth considering the posture of our hearts. And we see here in Genesis 32 the posture of Jacob's heart when he prayed to the Lord. He understood that he was less than the mercies of the Lord toward him. That he was unworthy, as sometimes our translations render it. He was unworthy of all of the loving kindness and faithfulness with which God had treated him. His approach to God was Humble and thankful. Humble and thankful. And those two marks ought to characterize any Christian's approach to God. It ought to be marked by humility, ought to be marked by gratitude. Humility should be the natural response of recognizing that in and of ourselves we're rebels and sinners against God. And God, out of his sheer mercy and grace, rescued us from that. We deserve nothing from God's hand, but God reached down and saved us. That should lead us to humility, and it should also lead us to gratitude. That the Lord is gracious, and anything good that we receive from His hand is certainly much, much more than what we deserve, because we only deserve judgment and wrath, but He has been so merciful, so good, and so kind. And so, by all means, use prudence. Be wise and... As you live your life, take action based on the word of God and based on sober and thoughtful reflection of how the world works. But don't stop with prudence. We need to seek the Lord in prayer in our day of trouble. And so we read in Psalm 145, verses 18 and 19, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him, He will also hear their cry and save them. And we do need to note that the Lord's way of rescuing may not be always the one that we had in mind. Sometimes He delivers not by taking the hard things away, not by healing the sickness and so on, but by strengthening us through them, by bringing His people to Himself through those hard things. And therefore we read in Hebrews 11, not only of those who obtained promises, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the power of the fire and escaped the edge of the sword, those victorious things, so to speak, we also read of those who experienced mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment and the sword. There were some who saw earthly deliverance, but there were others whose deliverance did not come until they went to be with the Lord. And we have to be all right with either one of those, whichever the Lord should choose. His ways are higher than ours and his ways are best. Now let's pick up reading in verse 22 and we'll read down through the end of the chapter as we come to our second point, which is wrestling for the blessing. Verse 22. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children across the ford of the Jabbok. He took them... And sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him, just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Now, we have in these verses what one commentator on the book of Genesis referred to as one of the strangest, most mysterious incidents recorded in the Bible. I think that's, I think that's pretty, fair, pretty fair to say. We read these last 11 verses of Genesis 32 and we may come away with more questions than answers. The Bible is not always as neat and as tidy as we might want it to be. But our responsibility is to receive it with reverence, to believe what is conveyed to us in it, and to seek by the grace of the Holy Spirit to be good stewards of the revelation that is given to us in Scripture and to apply it faithfully. It doesn't always fit into our nice and tidy little boxes and conform to our preconceived notions. And so let's let's think about this. Here we have Jacob left by himself. His wives and his children seem to be on the other side of the brook from him, spending the night there, and a man comes and wrestles with him. How often has that happened to you? Not too often. Um, I remember uh, once as a child that uh, my, my brother and I shared a room that uh, one time he was he should have been up on the top bunk, but he ended up down in my bed. We didn't wrestle, though, right? But Jacob here uh, is approached by a man, and they wrestle. This unnamed person is called a man, verse 24. But the narrative makes it clear, and Jacob likewise is clear, that this is not just, not just any man. Jacob wrestled with this man until daybreak. Even after this man had touched Jacob's hip and had dislocated the, so- the socket of his thigh, he kept wrestling. Even when the man said, let me go, for dawn is breaking, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And just on that level, I think we need to see that this is very much vintage, very much classic Jacob here. This is Jacob's typical behavior, contending in one way or another for a blessing, right? He sold the stew to his brother in exchange for the birthright. He wanted the blessing of that birthright. He tricked his father so as to get the Abrahamic blessing. He wanted that blessing. And now here he is, wrestling with a man, refusing to let go until he receives a blessing. This very much fits the character of Jacob as we see him in Genesis. And we should also see here that when this man speaks to him he gave, gives Jacob a new name. Right? It's not just not just anybody who has authority to change a name. He says your name shall no longer be Jacob but Israel. And then see what he says, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Not only had Jacob striven with men like his brother Esau or his father-in-law Laban, this man tells Jacob that he had also striven with God. How so? Well, let's continue considering what is told to us here. Not only does this man give Jacob a new name, but he also refuses to give his own name. right? Because not only did this man ask Jacob his name, and Jacob told him his name, and then Jacob's name gets changed, but Jacob also asked this man What is your name? And the only reply he gets is, Why is it that you ask my name? And then the man blesses Jacob. And then this mysterious man is gone. Right? Just think about the timeline here. They were were wrestling right as the day was breaking. They have this conversation that's recorded there for us, verses 26 through 29. And then the next thing that we see, Jacob gives this place a name based on what happens there calls it Peniel. I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. And then the next thing we know, the sun is rising, right? This this all happens pretty quick. They were wrestling as the day was breaking, and then uh, the blessing is given, and then the sun rises, and Jacob, Jacob is out of there, limping on his thigh. He was going from there as the sun comes up. Jacob is walking away by himself. The man is gone The wrestling had taken place all night long, but most of what we see here, at least from verse 26 down, happens from when dawn was just breaking to the point that the sun actually came up. Now, Jacob's understanding of what had happened here was that in looking at the face of his opponent in the wrestling match, he had looked upon the face of God. And his understanding is confirmed both here in the text of Genesis and by the prophet Hosea. Now, here in the book of Genesis, it is not without precedent for God to appear as a man. Just think back to to Genesis 18, when those three visitors came to Abraham. Now, two of those men turned out to be the angels who went down to Sodom and fetched Lot out of Sodom before it was destroyed. But one of those men, you will recall, stayed behind and spoke with Abraham as Abraham Bargained to preserve the city of Sodom if there could be found ten righteous men there. And the text of Genesis 18 refers to that man who was one of the three men who was speaking with Abraham as the Lord, as Yahweh. And you see this kind of thing elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. In Judges, Judges 13, for example, you have the angel of the Lord coming first to Manoah's wife and then to Manoah and his wife to announce the birth of Samson. The text of the book of Judges refers to him as the angel of the Lord. Manoah and his wife refer to him as a man. And when Manoah asks the man his name, he replies in a very similar fashion to what you see here in Genesis 32. He said, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? It's Judges 13:18. And then you'll remember that when Manoah offers a sacrifice, that angel of the Lord ascends up to heaven in the flame of their offering. And then what does Manoah say? Manoah says, we will surely die, for we have seen God. And so there in Judges 13, there's this visitor who was referred to by Manoah and his wife as a man. Text of Judges refers to him as the angel of the Lord. And then after he's gone, Manoah says, we'll surely die, for we have seen the face of God. And when we take into account the words of Hosea 12, 3 through 5, that text that we read together earlier this morning, uh, you see that the situation uh, of Judges 13 is similar here to what we see in Genesis 32. Because in Hosea 12, we were told this, that in the womb he took his brother by the heel. Okay, We know that from the history of Jacob. In his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us, even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. So Jacob was wrestling with this man, wrestling with an angel, wrestling with God. I would take this to be the, the pre incarnate Son of God, as I would uh, likewise with respect to Genesis 18, the. Uh, the angel of the Lord with whom Abraham was was bargaining for Sodom. And I would say the same with respect to Judges 13, that this is the pre-incarnate Son of God. Now, I'm sure I can't answer all of the questions that you may have about this passage. I have some some unanswered questions also. But I think what we need to glean from this is that Jacob was desperate to be blessed. That Jacob would not let go. He wouldn't stop until he had prevailed and received the blessing of God. And in a way, don't we see here how the Lord tests and tries Jacob's faith and his resolve in this regard? He, he injures Jacob, right? He dislocates his hip. I've never had that happen to me, and I don't know, uh, I don't know if I'd be able to even limp if that happened to me. Jacob, Jacob was. But, uh, but anyways, despite everything that had happened to him, Jacob would not be deterred. He was, he was pressing on, seeking desperately the blessing of God. And in this respect, isn't Jacob similar to that Syrophoenician woman that we heard about in our New Testament reading as our brother Nathan read from Matthew 15 this morning? We saw there how Jesus at first rebuffed this woman who came to him in her need. Jesus said, "'I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel.'" A little later, he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But even with all of that, this woman kept on coming. She wouldn't be stopped. She would not be deterred. She, as it were, passed the test. Jesus was trying and testing her as well. And Jesus finally said, oh woman, great is your faith. It shall be done for you as you wish. In that that respect, Jacob and this Syro-Phoenician woman are one and the same. They had great faith. They would not be deterred until they had received the blessing which they sought. And in this respect, both of them are examples to us as well. Great faith is that which is demonstrated when we come to Christ and refuse to let go of Christ until he blesses us. Now both Jacob and the woman in the Gospels had their obstacles, and we too have plenty of obstacles that would try to deter us when we seek after the blessing of Christ. Sometimes the Lord does not immediately answer our prayers. We might ask for some earthly blessing for years and not receive it. We might pray for good health or for a job or for a spouse and not get it for a long time. Or sometimes we might never receive the thing for which we are asking. In such circumstances when our prayers and seemingly godly desires seem to be rebuffed or ignored by the Lord, we must understand that the Lord sometimes does this in order to test us. He tries us, as it were, in the fire so that we ourselves might be refined and that we might come through shining more brightly in the end of it all. He wants to see us persevere in prayer. Just think, think with me to, to Luke 18. Jesus said that there was a judge in a certain place who didn't fear God and didn't care about men. And there was that widow who was continually coming to him for legal protection from her opponent. First, the judge was unwilling to help, but she kept after him to the point that even this unjust judge could say, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, continually coming, she will wear me out. And then Jesus summed up his point in telling that parable. This is Luke eighteen six 6-8. He says, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. And if you look at the context there in Luke 18, Luke 18, 1, Jesus was telling this parable so that to, to demonstrate that at all times his people ought to pray and not lose heart. The Lord wants to see us pray and to see us persevere in prayer. When we persevere in prayer, persevere and continue wrestling for the blessing, we demonstrate our earnestness, we demonstrate our trust in God, we demonstrate our dependence on Him. And again, we need to acknowledge that sometimes there are things for which we ask that we will never receive at all. Just think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where he was Tormented by that thorn in the flesh, that messenger of Satan. He wanted, it, he wanted it gone. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But what did the Lord say? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. But even in such circumstances, when the Lord was not granting this request of Paul, not giving him what he was asking for, even still he was working for Paul's good. How so? The Lord made Paul weak so that he might make Paul strong. And then as a result, he was able to say most gladly, therefore will I rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And as it was with Paul, so it will be with us as well. When we as the people of God ask God for something and he does not grant it to us, he'll still be working in those things for our good, ultimately that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we always need to keep in mind when seeking a particular blessing of God, those words of 1 John 5:14 and 15 that this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Because, as we've seen, we don't have any absolute guarantees that God will necessarily give us everything that we might ask for in prayer. He'll give it to us if it is his will. And ultimately, in such circumstances, when we find that we're not getting what we have asked for in prayer or when our godly desires seem to be thwarted by the Lord we need to remember that the Lord is in control and that the Lord is a good and just Lord and that He is the judge of all the earth and that the judge of all the earth will certainly do what is right. And in those times, we have to trust that God knows better than we do. Sometimes He answers our prayers quickly in the affirmative. Sometimes He answers our prayers in the affirmative only after much perseverance in asking, much wrestling in asking. And sometimes he answers our prayers in the negative. And when he does, it's okay. It's for his glory. And if you're a Christian, it's for your good as well. It might not feel like it at the time, but God knows best and God is working it for your good. What we must never doubt is God's sovereign control over us and over the world and his faithfulness to his promises and his faithfulness to his people. Great faith perseveres and persists in seeking God's blessing, even when it might appear that God is shutting us down. Great faith is that which continues loving, trusting God, and perseveres in seeking the blessing of God, even as Jacob did here. And I find it noteworthy that uh, as Christians, we are uh, incorporated into Israel. And so Paul speaks of the church in Galatians chapter 6 as the Israel of God, and if we think about the origin of this name Israel, that has striven with men and with God and yet prevailed. There's something there for us as well. We are incorporated into this body of people who have their name derived from this event. And therefore, we too should be those who strive with God, who persist in wrestling for the blessing, even as Jacob Did here. Now, I realize for the most part this morning I've been speaking to Christians, to those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus. But it may be that some of you are here this morning and you have not done that. You have not repented of your sins. You have not believed in Jesus and therefore are not a Christian. And there is, I think, a lesson here for you as well. This man, Jacob, knew that the blessing of God was what he needed. And he was willing to keep on, as we've seen, keep on wrestling until he received that blessing. And Jacob was right in thinking as he did. He knew that the blessing of God was what he needed. Now, have you realized for yourself your need of God's blessing? Because, as it is, if you are apart from Christ, you're apart from God. You are currently separated from Him. Apart from Christ, you're without God and without hope In the world, you may have experienced many earthly blessings, but the blessing that you need is eternal life. The blessing that you need is new spiritual life. You need the forgiveness of sins, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the question for you today is whether you will seek this blessing. Will you recognize today that you stand in need of the blessing of God? And will you come to Christ? For it, submitting to Him on His terms, which is turning away from your sins and believing in Him? Will you seek the blessing of God, though you must take up your cross and follow Jesus? Will you seek His blessing, though you may be despised by people here in this world and may have hardships come upon you that would not have come your way otherwise? Will you seek the blessing? Will you wrestle for it? Will you come to Christ for this blessing? Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Let me assure you, friend, that seeking the blessing of God is worth it. Just like it was for Jacob. Jacob, I'm sure, would take the limp any day, so long as he had the blessing of God. And the blessing of God is what you need too, and it is yours for the asking if you will turn to Christ, the Son of God who came into the world died for sinners so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you even for a difficult and mysterious passage of your word, but we thank you for the lesson that we can clearly glean from it, that your blessing is wonderful and is worth contending for. And Father, I pray that all of us here would be earnest and zealous and diligent in seeking your blessing, that we might be truly called as part of this name, Israel, the Israel of God. Lord, that we would wrestle and contend for your blessing and that we, by your grace, would prevail. Lord, it is not from us, but it is from you. And we ask your blessing, we ask your help. In Jesus' name, amen.